0: Well, I told you I'd be back for part two of this one, and I'm hoping I can get it all done in this episode. This is going to be part two of the American Renaissance. And to start with, I want to start again with kind of a reiteration of what does the American Renaissance mean. Before we get into the other half of the material I want to cover... I want to refocus on the point of this this whole idea. And to do that, I want you to look around you. Look at the younger people that you know. Gen X, the millennials, Gen Z, look at their look at them, look at their children. They have as a general rule no anchor, no foundation, no belief. And this is why we see an entire civilization floating around from thing to thing, thought to thought, movement to movement, with no real rhyme or reason. This is the reason that depression and suicide and mental illness rates are rising and are so high. It is why about a quarter of Gen Z is identifying as LGBTQWXYZ backslash Mexican question mark all of these kids are lost. They're floating through society because their parents didn't provide them an, an anchor, a foundation. They, and they, their parents were told that they shouldn't do that. Their parents were told, no, you don't need to anchor your kids. You just need to let them be kids. You need to let them figure out their own path. You need to let them chase their own dreams, live their own truths. And so many of the boomers and then Gen Xers, they all did just that. And millennials are doubling down on it. And all of that <clears throat> was really stupid advice. Um, it sounded good. It sounded romantic of just, oh, let your kids figure it out. Um, but it was, it, was bad. it was bad advice. And everybody said, oh, oh I'm just going to be hands off. I don't want to force my ideas onto my kid. I don't want to force my religion on my kids. I, I want them to walk their own path. Here's a smartphone. Good luck, kid. I'm going to go watch football. We, we had a whole bunch of people that did that. And they were all told that they were doing like the kind thing to let their kids grow up on their own and, and find their own truth and their own purpose and all that good stuff. And that's still what they think to this day. I'm telling you that's wrong. Uh, When you do that, you aren't leaving your kid in this uh, green field of butterflies to frolic and explore the universe of life. Life isn't a safe place with green fields and puppies and kittens and butterflies. What you are doing, what you did, was you left your child alone and naked in a desert in the middle of a blizzard surrounded by wolves. Because that is what life is. That is what the world is. You left them with no foundation, no anchor, no warm clothes, no armor to hold back the cold or fight off the wolves, no weapon with which to defend themselves against the things they will see. Instead, you toss them an iPad or a smartphone, which is the equivalent of giving a a toddler a snake to play with. Uh, Now, why do I say that? Well... Why do you think the suicide rate keeps going up and up? Why do you think the, the radical left is growing by leaps and bounds? Why do you think mental illness is being cheered and normalized? Why do you think everyone is questioning the very nature of truth and reality? Why do you think society is slipping into insanity around you? And I know you see it. Alright, I'm already off on a rant. But I'll tell you where this comes from. Um... Florida passed their, their bill this week that everybody on the left is calling the Don't Say Gay Bill. That's not what it's called, but they had to invent that name to make it sound bad. Uh, and everyone on my side, on the right, is cheering for uh, this anti-groomer bill. And that's good. It's a good thing. It's a good bill. But, just like everything else, everyone is looking at a tree and ignoring the forest, I can tell you right now that the vast majority of parents that are all rah-rah about this bill in Florida are also letting their kids have smartphones and access to the internet. And that is, that's hilarious to me. Picture a kid playing with a rattlesnake in the background while mom and dad wag their fingers and talk about how they don't want their kid being put in danger. Um, it really is that illogical you are you are all missing the picture here it is not the one crazy liberal teacher that your kid has that you need to worry about it is the thousand twice as crazy social media influencers that your child is watching on their smartphone when they're supposed to be listening to that crazy goofball of a teacher they're instead they're looking at their phone and the crazies on the phone are way more than the teacher. It's, it's a legion of insanity. It's an army. The entirety of, of your kids' online world is dominated by proponents of gender theory and critical race theory and Marxism and postmodernism and Freudian thought. The internet that your kids know is a swamp of the deepest and darkest and nastiest stuff you can imagine. Some of it is obvious, like porn and gore, and I've talked about that before, but a lot of it is not so obvious, and it's stuff like subtle Marxism injected into anything and everything, and it is atheism injected into everything, and it is these these Freudian amateur psychologists that actually do believe that babies and toddlers and small children are sexual animals instead of naive, innocent Children, that should never be sexualized in any way. It's a, it's a madhouse of bells and color. It's a funhouse of mirrors that, that shows your kid what they should be or what they can be instead of what they really are. Uh, it's an amusement park that we engineered, humans engineered, and it's run by soulless artificial intelligence. And it's managed by the devil himself. Uh, Am I emphasizing this a little bit too much? Probably. Do I actually believe all the things I just said? You betcha. Um, And older people especially don't get this. And they think that they can just buy some parental control software and that they're all good. I'm telling you now, don't be that naive. The internet that you know, Mr. and Mrs. Boomer or Gen X are out there, the internet that you know is not the internet that your child knows. Uh, now, kind of back to the topic i don't get me wrong. I support this Florida law wholeheartedly, and I think DeSantis is doing more than anyone else in the conservative movement. I think the guy needs to be president in a few years, but i'm I'm blown away by all these people who think that they are solving the problem with this, and I guarantee you the vast majority of these people are going to cheer and say, great, now I don't have to worry about these sneaky gays getting at my kid at school. Then they're going to go on ignoring their kid, never talking to them about anything that might be uncomfortable, and go on letting YouTube, TikTok, Pornhub, and the rest of the internet raise their kids while they sit glued to their own phone or their TV every single night. And I'll be honest, this is why I think this American Renaissance idea is a hell of a long shot. And I said that at the beginning. We as conservatives, we, we fight tooth and nail. We expend massive amounts of energy to metaphorically cut down a single tree. You know, Florida's bill. This is a single tree we've cut down. And then we sit down and we're breathing hard and we're wiping our sweat off our brow. And we feel very accomplished. And we say, oh, there, that ought to do it. Meanwhile, we're in the middle of an entire forest of problems. We ignore those problems, and we have ignored them for so long that we can't even acknowledge them anymore. Um, I mean, hell, 15 years ago, Barack Obama supported biblical marriage because he had to to get elected. Now, in 2022, the cultural left has won so much ground from the right that those very same people are openly saying that men and women are inherently exactly the same, and gender transitions for children are not only okay, but the morally correct thing to do. And if you disagree with them, they say you're killing trans kids. We are nowhere near acknowledging how big this problem is, because so many people are completely ignorant of, of these anchors and these foundations of our civilization, they don't even know about them, let alone pass them on to their kids. Somewhere along the line, we decided that they weren't important anymore. We decided that Western civilization was some class that we needed to take out of the curriculum because it wasn't inclusive enough, and it talked about old white dudes too much, and it was racist, and somewhere the, somewhere along the line, way back... We forgot that this stuff was supposed to be learned first, and then everything else was supposed to be learned second. And we became, as a country, we became untethered from our mooring. Uh, and if we really understood the problem, we wouldn't be satisfied with our children just not learning about gay sex in kindergarten through third grade. If we really understood the problem, we would be asking if our children were learning about natural law about western civilization, you know, is the declaration of independence actually taught in my kid's school or is it just read and a few lines are memorized and then they're given a test and they're asked, "Oh, you know, look at the look at these amendments and match them up on this graph over here." Like that is that is the that's what all western civ classes in school are and they call them social science or social studies, or, you know, that's what it's called at our school. And that's that's not the way to explain it. It's not explained. Does the, and often the teacher doesn't even have the reading comprehension to explain the Declaration of Independence to a kid. And instead of... That's just one thing. Instead of making sure we aren't talking about God at all in school, we should be making sure that we are... And not for religious purposes, but for the purposes of morality and understanding of our moral system and our law in society. The Ten Commandments aren't a religious subject only. They are a societal law subject, a subject of our civilization. But is that actually going to happen in the public school system? No. No, it is not. Which is why you either have to, number one, you have to pull your kid out of public school and homeschool them, or you're going to have to put down your damn smartphone, you're going to have to turn off your ball game, and you're going to have to teach your children about this stuff yourself. You cannot outsource the moral foundation of your children to the public school system. You morons. You can't outsource the sexual education of your children to the public school system. You can't outsource your job as a parent to the public school system. And trust me, that is what most parents are doing. And I've seen it firsthand from five years teaching public school. People send their kids to school and they want the teachers to be the parents. And it doesn't work, people. Um. So... If you are one of those people who actually kind of wants to take on this responsibility for yourself and for your family and for your children, then and only then will your country improve. That's the only way. And that's the only thing that's going to make this American Renaissance possible, which is, I think, as we talked before, if you've been following along, this is the only solution that ends anywhere good. Every other solution, or every other future that we have as a people doesn't end anywhere good. So, I think everybody needs to probably start taking this a little more seriously. But, that's just my thought, and that's why I'm doing this podcast. So, now that I've, I've got all that ranting out of the way, let's, uh, let's get back into the material that we are reading In the last episode, we went over uh, Greek stuff, and we went over Roman Republic stuff. We read some Plato, and we read some Cicero. This week, we're going to start off with the Roman Empire, and I want to start with Marcus Aurelius. Uh, I'm just going to go through and read some excerpts here from his writings and just kind of talk about them. Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor and this sort of uh, philosopher king. And he was, a, he was a Stoic philosopher. And to understand Stoic thought, you just have to read some of Marcus Aurelius, and it will, it will make some sense to you. So, um, this, is how, this is just an excerpt. He says, When you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, The people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly, They are like this because they cannot tell good from evil. But I have seen the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil, and I have recognized that they are the wrongdoer has the same nature related to my own, not of the same blood or birth, but the same mind, and possessing a share of the divine. And so none of them can hurt me. No one can implicate me in ugliness, nor can I feel angry at my relative or hate him. We were born to work together like feet, hands, and eyes, like two rows of teeth, upper and lower. To obstruct each other is unnatural. To feel anger at someone, to turn your back on him, these are obstructions. Okay. Just starting off here, you can, if you heard last week, you read some Plato and we talked about uh, the... two-part soul, and the Greek idea of the soul, and the humans having a bit of the divine in them, the divine spark, and also the heart of darkness. Human nature. That's what Marcus Aurelius is talking about. Human nature. He's saying, when you wake up, you should tell yourself that all the people you're going to deal with today are going to be kind of under the influence of this kind of worst parts of human nature. All right. Next, He says, Whatever this is that I am, it is flesh and a little spirit and an intelligence. Throw away your books. Stop letting yourself be distracted. That is not allowed. Instead, as if you were dying right now, despise your flesh. A mess of blood, pieces of bone, a woven tangle of nerves, veins, arteries. Consider what the spirit is. Air, and never the same air, but vomited out and gulped in again every instant. Finally, the intelligence. Think of it this way. You are an old man. Stop allowing your mind to be a slave, to be jerked about by your selfish impulses, to kick against fate and the present and the mistrust of the future. So, in this paragraph, he's, when he says throw away your books, he's obviously not saying, like, throw away all your learning. He's saying, like, get rid of your distractions, if this was a modern uh, if this was a modern thing it would say throw away your cell phone um he's telling you to live your life as if you're going to die because you absolutely are going to die and not live your life for you know for fun and oh we're just going to live like we're dying and we're going to go do a bunch of you know we're going to drink and do drugs and have sex that's not what he's saying he's saying better yourself now so that you're not a a slave to your body, to your impulses. Alright, next he says, What is divine is full of providence. Even chance is not divorced from nature, from the interweaving and enfolding of things governed by providence. Everything proceeds from it. And then there is necessity and the needs of the whole world, of which you are a part. Whatever the nature of the whole does, and whatever serves to maintain it, is good for every part of nature. The world is maintained by change in the elements and the things they compose. That should be enough for you. Treat it as an axiom. Discard your thirst for books so that you won't die in bitterness, but in cheerfulness and truth, grateful to the gods from the bottom of your heart. So, what you should start seeing here is how, at this point in the Roman Empire, Christianity was around, but it hadn't really caught on yet in the mainstream. There were still, there was Christians being martyred at this time during Marcus Aurelius's rule. But what you're seeing here is this stoic philosophy of the, of Marcus Aurelius that grew out of earlier Romans and grew out of the Greeks, this, this, these ideas of, of the divine and of fate and providence, they mesh so well with a lot of Christian ideas that later on, when when you have kind of uh, when Christianity does get bigger and it does go mainstream and Constantine becomes the first Christian Roman emperor, you you have this kind of connection, this meshing of the the Judeo-Christian philosophy and the Greco-Roman philosophy, and they fit together really well because they have a lot of similarities. Similarities on ideas about human nature, on ideas about divinity, uh, ideas about providence, and especially a lot of stoic ideas. Um, And we're going to start with Marcus Aurelius, and here in a second we're going to read a little bit of the Bible and read some things that Jesus said, and you're going to see parallels between what jesus said and what uh some of the stoic stuff all right um i'm not gonna read all of this because i don't want this podcast to last for five hours so let me find another another piece here that i think is important all right marcus aurelius says concentrate every minute like a roman like a man on doing what is in front of you with precise and genuine seriousness, tenderly, willingly, with justice, and on freeing yourself from all other distractions. Yes, you can, if you do everything as if it were the last thing you were doing in your life, and stop being aimless, stop letting your emotions override what your mind tells you, stop being hypocritical, self-centered, irritable, you see how few things you have to do to live a satisfying and reverent life? If you can manage this, that is all even the gods can ask of you. I really, really like this portion because it goes back to this parallel between these these ideas that Marcus Aurelius is talking about and what Jesus Christ is going to say in some of his stuff. Especially this bit on like, uh, stop being hypocritical, self-centered, and irritable. If you stop doing those things, he says, you can see how few things you have to do to live a satisfying and reverent life. This is what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. Like, every point of the Sermon on the Mount is don't be a hypocrite, don't be vain and full of pride, and love your neighbor. And if you do these things, you will live a satisfied and fulfilled life. Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, is not saying, oh, do these things and you'll go to heaven. He is saying that, but there's, there's more to it than just like, oh, if you do these things, you go to heaven. If you do these things, you will live a, a better life. You will be more successful. Your family will be more successful. Your society will be more successful. That's what Marcus Aurelius is saying, and that is what uh, we'll get to here in a second with, uh, I think I have Sermon on the Mount that I want to read. Maybe. We'll see. Um, let me fast forward here a little bit because I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on Marcus Aurelius. All right, here's one more though that I want to read. Marcus Aurelius says, "God sees all our souls freed from their fleshy containers, stripped clean of their bark." cleansed of their grime he grasped with his intelligence alone what was poured and channeled from himself into them if you learn to do the same you can avoid a great deal of distress when you see through the flesh that covers you will you be unsettled by clothing mansion celebrity the painted sets the costume cupboard now this is another important part once again, it relates to how this meshes with Christianity. Marcus Aurelius is saying like that God can perceive humanity as stripped of all its worst bits. And if you can try to achieve that as best you can, if you can try your best to strive after the divine, to try to walk with, you know, a Christian would say walk with Jesus or walk with God, if you're trying to get closer to God... You will live a better life you you will you won't have so much distress because you'll understand simple inherent truths about human nature and the world and death and life and hardship, and it won't all be so damn hard um because you'll be aware of it. These are just some of the the writings of Marcus Aurelius, some of his ideas, and you can you you have this thread of thought and ideas that go from Aurelius back through Cicero, and back through the Roman Republic, and back further to Plato and the Greeks. And then we get to Christianity. I mentioned this before. Um, Christianity is around during uh, Aurelius' time, uh, and it's it's kind of the history of Christianity in Rome is very interesting. It's super complicated. I don't have time to get into all of it right now. Um, I just want to talk about, like, obviously Christianity and Rome, Rome don't go together right away. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, Christians being fed to lions in the Colosseum. It takes us a while to get there as Western civilization, but I want to talk about the, the, the Western world Coming together, this this Greco-Roman thing, and then early early Christianity, which grows out of Judaism, and you have Judeo-Christianity, and you have uh, you have the Greco-Roman stuff, and they start to mesh later. So we're we're more focused on the ideas here than the history, and I don't want to get way out in the weeds. So how are the ideas of Jesus and Christianity similar to these ideas? of Marcus Aurelius how are they different? Because Jesus Christ is fundamentally different and so are his teachings. That's why he's met with such resistance. And when I say different, I mean Jesus Christ is, is a fundamentally different character than everybody, of course, because if you're Christian, you believe he's the Son of God, which I do because I am. Um, but even if you're not Christian, Christ is still a a fundamentally kind of revolutionary character in the in the world of philosophy because he says things that that people really weren't on board with yet especially when it comes to the Greeks. So Jesus says stuff like you should love your neighbor. Everybody's on everybody's on board with that, right? Until Jesus Jesus explains who he means by neighbor. Because provided uh that you actually mean neighbor or your fellow tribe member or your countryman, like your fellow Roman, for example, um, everybody's on board with that. If they are Roman, if they are Greek, they're fine with that. But when Jesus says, love your enemy, now that's a bridge too far for most cultures at the time and most people at the time. And Jesus' philosophy is tied up and inseparable from the heavenly and the divine, specifically because of his lesson and the lessons about how the kingdom of God works. So let's read a let's read a parable. And it is a parable that explores some of the same ideas that we have read. Um it's not the Sermon on the Mount. I wanna I might do that one here in a second, but I want to start with this one because I have it first. So How Cicero and Cicero's ideas on natural law, how the idea of moral law superseding written law or civil law, uh, does Jesus ever talk about that? Of course he does. Now, he says, this is a Jesus parable. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and he tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law, and how readest thou? And he answered, saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he, meaning Jesus, said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down the road a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the same place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again I will repay thee. Which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. And, then Jesus, and said Jesus unto him, go and do likewise. You see? Here's where uh, this parable can be a little confusing. The priest and the Levite aren't just jerks who don't care. Um, and this is what a lot of people don't understand about this parable. They are following uh, the church law. A civil church law. A, like a, a government law because the The church was the government. And I have to give a shout out to Pastor Kent Peck, who taught me this. And I hope I get it right at least a little bit and do it a little bit of justice. But it goes something like this. The priest and the Levite are following old Jewish law. And they aren't allowed to touch anything that is dead because of their priestly and churchly duties. A dead corpse is unclean and they cannot touch it. If they do, there's this whole cleansing process, an atonement process, that they have to go through, and while they do that, they can't go to work. If they don't go to work, they don't eat, and their family doesn't eat. So, the, the priest and the Levite are not just being mean and not caring about the man. He looks as if he's dead, and they are acting within the church law, and prudently acting according to taking care of their families. They're not really doing anything wrong. So this parable isn't just Jesus saying that the priest and the Levite are, are jerks that didn't stop to help. They are acting in accordance with who they are and doing the you know, quote-unquote right thing according to the civil law. But the Samaritan, he is not a Jew. He's an outsider. He has no such obligation to priest and Levite law. And he goes to the man and he finds out that he's not actually dead. He looks dead, but he's still alive. He binds up his wounds, he takes care of them, he does the morally correct thing. And he is following, the, the Samaritan is following what we would call natural law. The reason this shuts up the Jewish lawyer in the story is because the natural law is God's law. And that law says to love your neighbor and show mercy and compassion. Uh, the, The priest and the Levite are also following what they consider to be God's law. And this is why Jesus was so controversial with the Jewish church leaders. And this is why they ended up getting him put to death. He shows them the contradictions inherent in their own civil and religious laws and where they fall short. In doing so, he is touching on some of the same things that Cicero touches on about a hundred years before and Plato before that. Natural law, God's law, is simple and is written in the chambers of the human heart. But when faced with it, the powers that be are always adverse to it, which is why Jesus suffers the same fate as Socrates in ancient Greece, in some ways. Now, Everybody knows this by now. I'm a Christian. I'm not saying that Plato and Cicero thought this up first, and Jesus comes along later with just similar ideas. Become because I'm a Christian, I believe that Christ is the Son of God, and in effect is the author of this natural law. I think that Plato and Cicero and others were observing this natural law written in the natural world and in their own natures, which I think is entirely possible through observation and study, which the Greeks were big into. God gave us the ability to think and to reason and observe for a purpose. And I believe that the the truths that are written in the Bible are also written in those, you know, the chambers of your heart. And I think that there are around us in the natural world. I think they're written in the stars, I think it's in the sunset, I think it's in the mountains. In the in the gnarled ancient tree, um, in the aesthetic, obvious kind of objective beauty of things, like the Greeks talked about, um, things like you know feminine grace and form and masculine strength and ability, uh, the the romantic embrace you have with your spouse or the eyes of your children, I think that you can see God's truth written in those things too. And if you can't, if natural law is not a real thing, then why do those things move us emotionally? Anyways, a little off topic there. Let's do another uh, Jesus parable and see if we can tie them together. Uh, this one is the parable of the vineyard owner from Matthew the parable, uh, and the par- the parable of the prodigal son from Luke. So first the vineyard owner. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about in the third hour, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also to the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went on their way. Again he went out in the sixth hour and ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and said to them, Why stand ye here all day idle? And they say unto him, Because no man has hired us. And he saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that ye shall receive. So when even was come, the lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire, beginning from the last, unto the first. And when they came, they were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal to us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong, didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto the last, even as unto thee. Is this not lawful for me to do when I, what I will with my own? Is this thine eye evil, because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, that is the vineyard owner. And we're going to jump right into the next one, the prodigal son. And he said And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto them. When he came to himself, he said, "How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I will perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father." I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and he had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thine sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this is my son, was dead, and and is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and he came and drew nigh to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and asked what these things meant. And he said unto them thy brother is come and thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound and he was angry and he would not go in therefore came his father out and entreated him and he answered said to his father lo these many years do i serve thee neither transgressed i at any time thy commandment and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son was come, which had devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So, both of these parables have to do With the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. The divine versus the earthly. And especially the nature of God's kingdom. And what is that nature? Well, this is where Jesus was really the revolutionary voice. Grace and mercy. It's all grace and mercy. So much grace and mercy that we see that humans don't even like it. We don't think it is fair. But, That is the point Jesus is making. It is not about what is fair. If it was about what is fair, then we're all headed down to the fiery pit, right? That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says the law tells you um, not to uh, commit adultery, but I tell you even if you look at a woman with lust, you've already done it. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is you, you are a sinner, even if you think you're not. So, because that's the case, you have to have the the idea of Jesus, of this grace and mercy and forgiveness. Now, and this is where modern Christianity, I think, really makes mistakes. This forgiveness always comes after repentance and acceptance of sins. You see this in the... Uh, In the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son comes to his father on his knees and admits to his sinful ways and all that he's did, and he he begs to just be a servant. He doesn't come home and say, yo dad, give me a fatted calf. And this uh, this is why the pride movement and gay acceptance pushed by a lot of mainstream progressive churches misses the mark so hard. They want everyone to look at Jesus as this hippie dude and make him out to be some sort of free-love, 60s-era tie-dye guy smoking weed in a van. It's all cool, bro. You you do you. Everyone is perfect how they are, man. And that isn't the message of Jesus' parables. Ever. In fact, Jesus isn't exactly a nice, polite guy in the Gospels. He's very harsh. He's He's very cutting. He's not often very nice. Uh, He speaks the truths that nobody wants to hear, especially the people who are misrepresenting the laws of God and morality. He is the guy in Plato's allegory that has descended back into the cave and he is trying to enlighten humanity. And what does humanity do? Well, they want to kill him, of course. Except for this time, that is all part of the plan. It is what has to happen. The sacrifice... Of, of Jesus um, has to happen, and Jesus knows it. And it's this sacrifice that humanity had been imitating in a thousand different ways, in a thousand differing cultures, imitating it, knowing they had to have it. Uh, Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, the Greeks burning offerings to Zeus, the Romans offering to their gods. This is a, this is a natural law thing that all humanity was always trying to figure out for thousands of years. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Not the imitation of the thing, but the thing itself. Um, But that's all faith and belief and religious stuff, and we're talking about Western civilization. But the two are related. Because it is the belief. It is an actual faith and belief in God and natural law that provides this cohesion of the cultures. This is why we used to fundamentally believe in this stuff. All right, where am I at? I'm in, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not to an hour yet. This is this is going to be a long podcast. Uh, I still have a lot of, that I want to fit in, but I want to do this all in one shot. Um, so we're going to jump right into the next kind of stage here, and that is Europe and the Enlightenment and then the uh, the age of revolution and finally the founding fathers of america now there really is no clean easy way for me to cover european history you know the growth and dominance of catholicism martin luther's reformation the fracturing and fighting within the church the reshaping and the arguing about those religious philosophies then you have the european renaissance Um, and this looking backward at the Greeks and Romans, then you have the Enlightenment and this explosion of philosophy and advancement. Then you have the Age of Revolution, and you have the Dawn of America. And there's no way for me to cover all that completely in one podcast. Um, It would just be too messy. So, I'm going to have to pick out some highlights to get my point across. And my point, again, is that these things I'm talking about... Uh, are the things that you need to be reading. They're the things that we need to be reading as a as a culture and a people. Um, and not just reading but believing and understanding uh, these are the kinds of things we need we have to read and read again and and understand them uh, to put into our personal practice and into our personal philosophy. And it's not enough to understand it. We have to believe it and to believe it, you first have to learn about it. So I'm going to snag a few important bits and I'm going to try to tie all this together with a neat bow and keep this under two hours. First guy, Thomas Aquinas. This guy is the the bright burning light through the so-called Dark Ages. So after the fall of Rome, you have what's what most people call the Dark Ages in Europe. And, uh, it was the Dark Ages, and there was really only one place where kind of learning kept its, you know, kept its hold, and uh, there was only one light burning, and it was kind of the church. And this Thomas Aquinas guy, and I hope I'm saying that right, um, he's really the first guy to the party that would later become the, the Renaissance. Uh, he is the guy that really gets credit for taking Christian philosophy and Greek philosophy and and hammering and smelting them into Western philosophy. And I told you that was coming before this is the guy. Aquinas is the guy that gets the credit for finally kind of doing that. He kind of synthesized Aristotle, which is a Greek philosopher, and Christian theology. And this became the official philosophy of the Catholic Church for years to come. Uh, And the way he kind of put this Greek and Christian stuff together was that he thought the Greeks were really onto something with their observation of the natural world. And he believed that we could prove the existence of God by observing the natural world, by observing stuff like cause and effect, and gravity, and the motion of the earth, and science. And this is a really quick explanation, and you should go read Thomas Aquinas on your own, but I'll give you a quote of his that kind of sums him up. He said, "...the study of philosophy..." is not so that we may know what men have thought, but what the truth of things is. He understood that studying this old philosophy was a way to achieve enlightenment and to learn truth. So, I'm going through this stuff quick because I want to finish it in this episode. Uh, Maybe in future ones I'll kind of go back and refocus on a few of these guys. But next up we've got Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. He comes a couple centuries after Thomas Aquinas, and Luther finds some issues within his own church. Over a couple hundred years, the Catholic Church, being tied directly to all these nation and state governments, had grown corrupt in a lot of ways, especially with the selling of indulgences, which was basically traveling guys that went around to poor peasants and said, hey, give me money and I'll get your loved ones out of uh, purgatory and into heaven. And Luther took an issue with that and he took an issue with some other things. And he famously nailed his 95 thesis to the door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. What this was, was a public call for debate within the church over indulgences Luther didn't want to abandon the Catholic church right then and there. His, his nailing the things to the door was not him giving the finger to the church. It was him saying, hey, I think we have some serious issues that we need to talk about. But he, like so many men before him in Western tradition, going back to Socrates, he made all he made the big all-time mistake. He challenged the establishment, the power structure, the, the government, right? And so what did the Catholic Church do to him? Did they say, okay, let's hear you out, let's talk about these things you're worried about? Well, of course they didn't. They excommunicated him instead. And the Reformation comes to pass after that. And uh, that's the history piece of it. But what did the Reformation do for Western philosophy? What did that movement kind of ingrain in us as a culture? Well, the answer to that is of course Protestantism. The right of the free man to protest that which he sees as immoral or wrong. This this Protestant idea became the idea that nothing has to stand between you and God. And yeah, that is a that's a bit of an oversimplification, but that is the essence of it. Luther's basic idea was like you It's not that he didn't think we needed church leadership, because that's not true. But the essence of it was, like, there is no one standing between you as a free man and God. And this idea, it happened because Martin Luther translated the Bible from Latin and Hebrew into German. And then he printed it so that Germans could read the Bible for themselves. Which is what I'm getting at with all this stuff about reading. We are so lucky in our modern world when it comes to access to history and learning. I have a flash drive that contains an entire library of classic books on PDF form that I downloaded for free from the internet in like a single afternoon. Um, the, the, the greatest works of mankind that we have are freely available online and the download is one click away in a PDF version that takes up basically no space on a computer. It is, it's so available and so simple that we take it for granted. So much so that there is, there is no way we can understand what it must have felt like for a faithful German the first time he was able to read the Bible in his own language and hold it in his hands. The printing press and the Reformation changed the world. And this wasn't just it didn't just change western civilization. The the printing press and the reformation changed the entire world. And we really barely gloss over it in school, which is stupid, but I don't want to get off track. So, if you're following along at home, here's what we have. We went from Socrates and Plato to Cicero and Marcus Aurelius, and then to Jesus Christ and then to Thomas Aquinas and then to Luther. And all through these centuries, and these different figures and writings, there is a constant truth of humanity, and all of this lays the foundation for the Renaissance and the Enlightenment in Europe, because after the Reformation, or the, or beginning alongside it in some ways, is the Renaissance in Europe. There, this is a, a couple hundred year period from the fifteen hundreds through the sixteen hundreds where all these European cultures became obsessed with culture and art and economic and political ideas. And all of it, they looked back and they borrowed and learned from the Greeks and the Romans. And after the printing press, the philosophical movement in Europe exploded, uh, beginning uh, in the Renaissance and moving through the Enlightenment as well. Once the Enlightenment hits, and this happens about, I don't know, 1700 through the 1800s, there come along all of these brilliant and revolutionary thinkers. Way too many to to even list, but I'm just going to go through kind of some of the main players. Early on, you have people like uh, Sir Francis Bacon in England. This guy is known as the father of the English essay he invented the essay to explore an idea or a subject in written form so that others could read it and think about it. And this is where these guys can write an essay, print it off, and suddenly you can start bouncing your ideas off of other people in Europe. You know, if you're in England, you can can read something from something a German wrote or something... uh, a Frenchman wrote, or an Italian, or a Scotsman, and these ideas bounce back and forth. Um, uh, you have uh, René Descartes was another guy in the early Enlightenment, and this guy was French. and He was a philosopher who asked questions that no one had really thought about before. He, he was famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. And his ideas on reality of existence were super deep. And they caused a lot of people to ask a bunch of questions about existence. Um, He's the guy that thought it was possible that everything we see or experience might all be a dream. Um, People still like to talk about this today, but now it's like uh, the idea that we're all in a computer simulation. Uh, He was also a mathematician. He developed the techniques that made algebraic geometry possible. He pioneered in a lot of ways uh, the ideas on metaphysics. Which, where he argued philosophically and scientifically for the existence of God. Um, after them, you have some others. You have uh, Dene Diderot, which he helped create the first encyclopedia in France. In Scotland, you have David Hume, who was famous for his philosophical thoughts on skepticism and naturalism. In Germany, you have Immanuel Kant, who worked on things like metaphysics and morality. Uh, he thought that reason was the source of morality and aesthetics. He thought that you could create world peace through universal democracy and international cooperation. Uh, Kant was ambiguous about God's existence, and he shifted between belief and agnosticism, but he, he theorized that society must have faith in religion to maintain their, their morality. Uh, In England, you have John Locke, and this guy becomes known as the father of liberalism. And this was classical liberalism, of course, not modern liberalism. He wrote uh, the treatise on government, and he said that humans had natural rights, there we go, to things like life, liberty, and property. He distilled these natural rights and natural law ideas down to uh, life, liberty, property, and uh, negative Writes. Uh, in Geneva, Jean Jacques Rousseau, he was a writer and composer. He also wrote about politics and uh, economy and some educational stuff. In Scotland, Adam Smith becomes the father of economics when he wrote about capitalism, the market, and the invisible hand. In France, Voltaire advocates for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and separation of the church and the state. He was so versatile of a writer and thinker, he wrote works on almost everything. Plays, poems, novels, essays, histories, and scientific expositions. He wrote more than 20,000 letters and 2,000 books and pamphlets. All of these guys are just a few of the most famous Enlightenment writers, but there are a whole bunch of more. And that brings us up to 1776 in America. Because America itself was, in ways... A product of the Enlightenment. I would argue that it was the crowning achievement of the Enlightenment. Uh, all of the best without the worst, because not all of the Enlightenment ideas were good ones. Uh, so this leads us to the Founding Fathers of America. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. These guys are the big ones. Uh, there's more than that, but those guys are the kind of the main ones. And when these guys sit down to kick off the revolution, they aren't just a bunch of guys setting out to cause a, a ruckus. They build upon this foundation of all the best philosophical ideas from their history. Just like Thomas Aquinas said, they didn't just read these philosophers to see the way they thought. They read them to figure out what the truth was. And what was that truth, that single truth that ran through all of it, all the way back to Plato, well, it was natural law, natural rights, the self-evident truths. So when they write the Declaration, and they say, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." This is the belief in natural rights and natural law. And they say that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. This is a big idea. And the idea is that the only purpose of government is to secure natural rights. That was very radical. And they are saying that, that is the only purpose of government. And what if the government's not doing that? Well, here's the next line. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." So, this is what the founders write in the Declaration. And the Declaration forms this... It outlines the American philosophy. And it becomes the American philosophy. And it's a philosophy rooted deeply in Western civilization and Western history. America wasn't just built by the Founding Fathers... They get a lot of the credit. They were brilliant men, but it's not just them that, uh, that did this. And I want to read the, uh, the last little bit of the Declaration before I get completely away from it here. Because what they say to kind of like, uh, to wrap this all up, they say, uh, and for the support of this Declaration, with firm reliance on the protection of the Divine Providence... We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now this last line, this is not just words. These guys guys thought at this point that they were probably going to die, because they were going to take on the most powerful country on earth. And they were pledging to each other their lives, and all their money, and their honor, which they viewed as sacred. Um and you need to understand that these men these brilliant men were influenced by other brilliant men stretching back through history when plato writes about his guardians in the republic imagining great men educated in wisdom courage justice and temperance the founders are attempting to turn that into reality when brutus and cassius in rome hold up their bloody knives over caesar's dead body and they yell, Six Semper Tyrannus. The founders are modeling themselves after that idea. When Luther stood up and said, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. The founders are channeling that belief and that philosophy. When Voltaire says, well, This is a tribute to Voltaire. He says, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. When John Locke says life, liberty, and property, all of that, all of it, goes into the creation of the United States and the American philosophy. And it is those foundations on which the country grew and thrived. It is, that is what I mean when I talk about the American Renaissance. It is understanding all of these ideas so that you can understand that all of them are the things that built the world you live in. And so, when people come along now, in the year 2022, and they talk about how terrible and horrible and evil and racist all these old white dudes are, and they're ignoring the fact That these men understood the evils of the world, as well as the good. They understood immorality, and morality both. They knew the the duality of man, human nature, the, the divine spark, the heart of darkness. They understood that. They knew themselves to be imperfect, and they never claimed to be perfect. They tried their damnedest to progress the world as far to the ragged edge as society would allow them. And when I hear people talking about how horrible and awful they all were, well, I just can't take them seriously. Any of them. And this is different than I... It used to make me mad. It used to just make me mad. But now, now it just makes me sigh. And just roll my eyes. Because those people are like the prisoners in Plato's cave. They have their own reality that they have invented and they do not want to hear you. They are the Greeks that shouted down Socrates and made him drink hemlock. They are the Pharisees that demanded Jesus be crucified because of his philosophy. They are the corrupt church leaders who wanted Luther's head for exposing the hypocrisy of the church at the time. They are the tyrants and the savages. They either don't know any better or they do but they don't care. And if we don't have this American renaissance, if we don't remember all of this, if it doesn't get re-ingrained into our American DNA, in a few generations, that's all that's going to be left. Tyrants and savages. I go back, did a whole episode over that. The truth will still be there. Natural law, natural rights, all of that will still be there because it is... As the founder said, these are self-evident, eternal truths. But those who believe in it, and those who hold on to it, and those who fight for it, will be very few and very far between, and the world will not be a pleasant place. And the country will not be what it once was. So, if you, you want that decent future for your country you need to go start reading about all of these people that I've talked about in, in this episode and the last episode. I'm not telling you you have to become some kind of philosophy nerd like I am. I'm just telling you you need to read a little bit of it and you need to understand at least the concept that all of these ideas over thousands of years culminate in the, the world you are living on. The, the society you live in with your internet and your computers and your Starbucks and your McDonald's, all of that is built upon a foundation of Western civilization, a foundation of all these beliefs and ideas. It is not just something that exists because it exists. It was built that way. And that's why in my, in my book series at the at the very end of my book i end with with this idea of kind of western civilization falling and that's the i mean that's the kind of message of the book is if you if you don't do things right this is this is what will befall you and in my book at the very end the the epilogue of the book you have the a letter from the protagonist of the novel, and he's he's explaining that the, the reason that civilization fell is because we kicked in the pillars of our society, of Western civilization. Um, and I think that is what we are currently... I think that's what we are kind of currently doing. And I'm not sure if it's... Uh, I'm not sure if it's even avoidable, to be honest, because I think it's something we do naturally. Uh, I, I don't think anything is forever, and I don't think. I, I'm not saying it's going to be tomorrow, but I don't think any anything stands forever, and that's why I don't think uh, in the end there will be kind of a a loss of the American culture, and something else will have to kind of rise up. And hopefully it's built on some of these ideas. I mean, the, the Greeks, they rose and they thrived and then they went away. And the Romans, they rose and thrived and they went away. And several different European cultures did the same. And America is not special, not different in the, in the eyes of history. We are not larger than, than anyone else when it comes to uh, the longevity of our, of our nation as an empire. Uh, so that's all I can give you that's I don't know if that's a happy way to leave it but uh, but that's all I can really give you on that front so I hope you got something out of that you got something out of the uh, the American Renaissance idea and I still do I truly hope this is the the path that America takes I hope that everybody gets on board and and teaches. Their kids these things and anchors them in moral ideas and ideas on natural rights and natural law because I I, I think if we don't we're in for a we're in for a rough run uh, and this is something you can do yourself it's not something that you you can wait around for other people to do this is something that you have to do you have to make the decisions to to kind of embrace these ancient ideas and understand them and try to just like all these men tell you especially Jesus Christ live your life by these ideals as best you possibly can and not only might it you know get you to heaven it will make your your life on earth better it will make your family better it will make your society better if if everyone in your society is is on board with these ideas you will have prosperity. And if it's only you, at least you will you'll be better off than you would have been if you didn't. Alright, I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it.